the next stop, Sprawlcast. You're listening to Sprawlcast. My name is Jeremy Klossus and I'm the editor-in-chief of The Sprawl. Sprawlcast is a show made in collaboration with CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. And we are broadcasting slash podcasting from Treaty 7 territory, the home of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Pikani, Siksika, and Ghana nations, along with the Sutina Nation and Stony Nakoda nations. This place is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. But just how damaging to relations is the entire debate? Uh, What we are asking here is that our uh, police service not wear a known hate symbol. Those comments were incendiary. The challenge that I've always had is that people will always try and reduce complex concepts into into a hashtag. Who knew that a patch on a uniform could become such a flashpoint? It's been in the news a lot lately. I'm talking about the thin blue line worn by many police officers and recently banned by the Calgary Police Commission. Well, sort of banned. Today on Sprawlcast, we're going to look beyond the patch itself to try and understand what's beneath the surface of this conflict, what this conflict reveals, and what it obscures. To explore this, I spoke with Councillor Courtney Walcott, one of two city councillors who sit on the Calgary Police Commission. But first... Let's start with some backstory. The Thin Blue Line was raised as an issue at a Calgary Police Commission meeting just over a year ago. The Police Commission is the civilian body that oversees the police service. It's made up of 10 citizen volunteers and two city councillors, and in March 2021, the commission chair at the time, Benita Croft, noted that the patch was viewed by some as having racist connotations. The patch had been showing up at anti-mask rallies where different white supremacist symbols were present. And various police forces in North America, including the RCMP, had recently banned cops from wearing the symbol on their uniforms. At the time, Calgary Police Chief Mark Neufeld said that the patch meant something else to cops. He said for police, the thin blue line symbolized the ideals of justice bravery, and service to the community, and that the patch also honoured fallen officers. But he also said the symbol had been appropriated to a degree by white nationalists. A year later, the patch clearly means different things to different people. It's been understood to signify order, the line that keeps society from falling into chaos. It's also been understood to signify the so-called blue wall of silence, the idea that cops should have each other's backs to protect each other from charges of brutality. It's also been seen as a dividing line between police and the public. Those concerns have grown over the past year, as more police forces have banned the symbol. Here's what Police Commissioner Marilyn North Pagan recently told CBC. She's one of the citizen members of the commission. The community, on the other hand, they see it as, you know, as drawing the line. It becomes the, the policing and the community. So that's not the messaging that we want when we are actually addressing systemic racism. We're trying to bring the policing back to the community in a manner where it serves the community, not divides them. On March 30th, the Calgary police announced that cops would no longer be able to wear the patch in light of a new directive from the police commission but police openly defied the order. The Calgary Police Association, one of the police unions, actually distributed more patches after the order came down. And this raised the question of who was really in charge of the police service? The commission or police themselves? Was the commission essentially a decorative organization? On paper, and by law, according to the Police Act, The police must follow the directives of the commission, and the Calgary Police Service itself boasts that accountability is one of its core values. But now you had the police openly defying its overseers. 
Here's what Councillor Giancarlo Carra, one of the two councillors on the commission, had to say about that on March 31st. Make no mistake, citizens oversee the Calgary Police Service, and that citizen oversight has made a determination, and uh, we, will, we, we, will, we will get to compliance. That clip is from CTV, and in that same media scrum, Karras said that the thin blue line is a symbol whose origins are buried in hateful thoughts and hateful deeds. Uh, what we are asking here is that our uh, police service not wear a known hate symbol. That comment did not sit well with police. Here's what John Orr, president of the Calgary Police Association, told Global. The police association is the main police union. When unfounded, politically motivated attacks come, out, come at our officers and our profession from leaders in their community, it is too much. And here's what Police Chief Mark Newfeld said at a press conference on April 5th. We have a tired and frustrated workforce, and as I've said, morale is at an all-time low. Removing patches from the uniforms is one thing, but completely vilifying the symbol and its meaning to our people, which has been, which has been communicated, is uh, very much another. I believe we saw a reference to the thin blue line uh, being referred to as a known hate symbol, with a history of hateful hearts and hateful deeds. Those comments were incendiary. Our employees are very concerned about the current state of the important relationship that must exist between the Calgary Police Commission and our service. They feel that a number of issues have been raised but not acknowledged, and we have progressively moved down a road where goodwill has become in short supply. And the most recent decision in relation to the thin blue line was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. Newfeld acknowledged that he was legally responsible for carrying out the commission's direction, but said it couldn't happen immediately on this one. Their communications did include a date for sure. It was March 31st, 2022, which no doubt would have set expectations in the minds of many. However, the timeline wasn't a realistic one, given the size and nature of our service. And what I'm talking about is the number of people who are on duty and off duty that work nights and days and, and different shift patterns and that sort of thing. And, and even more probably specifically, the significance of this particular decision on our people. We all realize that symbols are powerful and deeply meaningful. The thin blue line symbol has been around for a long, long time in police culture and not just here in Calgary, but globally. To the members of the Calgary Police Service, the thin blue line symbolizes honor for the fallen, service to our community, and support for one another. Now, at that April 5th press conference, Newfeld also said that police were keeping a close eye on certain city councillors. And it was pretty clear that he was talking in particular about Councillor Giancarlo Carra, as Carra and Walcott are the only two council members on police commission. You know, we're in a situation now where our members are paying uh, very close attention to the social media accounts of, uh, of individual councillors and the quantity of uh, anti-police um, content that's being sort of posted, shared or liked is, is really causing concern to the members. Uh, oftentimes, I think we talk with uh, commission and so we hear the voice of commission and the direction of commission, and then we'll hear different things after. And the feeling of the membership is that there are, there are individual agendas that are being pursued that are, that are maybe overshadowing the larger governance role. And that, in effect, uh, the effect of all of that is that it is uh, eroding trust and confidence in the police service here in the city. In response to all this, the police commission said that it supported the chief giving cops time to work through this issue. And that was to be done by April 18th. That was the new deadline. In the meantime, a bizarre story broke on April 11th. A number of local newsrooms got an anonymous tip about Kara stepping back from police commission because of a quote-unquote alleged road rage incident. Kara put out a statement the next day with more details. He says he was walking his dog on April 2nd when a driver blew through a stop sign and almost hit them. He says he tapped the vehicle's bumper with his foot as it sped by. Some verbal back and forth ensued, and then, according to Kara, the driver started physically assaulting him. That's the story according to Kara, and the incident is now under investigation by police. 
Not Calgary Police, though. Because it's an elected official, Calgary Police say they've referred it to Edmonton Police to investigate. And Kara has recused himself from the police commission until this is sorted out. In the meantime, the enforcement deadline on the Thin Blue Line was quickly approaching, but on the afternoon of Thursday, April 14th, the afternoon before the long weekend, the cops made an announcement. They were dropping the deadline for removing the patch, and police wouldn't be disciplined for continuing to wear it. There would be no enforcement for now. Instead, there would be further talks between the commission and police unions, The commission put out a statement saying it supports this move and is seeking buy-in and voluntary compliance over enforcement. All of this raises serious questions. Did the commission capitulate to a police force that decided to go rogue? Is the police commission truly overseeing the police, or is it the other way around? Now we're going to hear from Councillor Courtney Walcott, But before we go to that conversation, we're going to go back to the summer of 2020. City Council held a public hearing on systemic racism that July. And before he was a city councillor, Courtney Walcott was a high school teacher and activist, and he was one of the speakers at that public hearing. Here's some of what he had to say to city councillors that summer. As a person of colour... As a biracial man, as a black man, I have lived under the shadow of qualifications my entire life. I've had to qualify my Canadianness, I've had to qualify my whiteness, I've had to qualify my blackness. And then I moved to the Northeast, and somehow all the work I had done qualifying and quantifying my value was lost in the stories and stigma of the Northeast. I realized the terror people felt toward the Northeast correlates along poverty and color lines. We stigmatize the Northeast because it is less taboo than saying the poor and colored area of town. But we who live there know the story told about us. This is the same story that infiltrates urban planning, housing, healthcare, education, and policing of this area. Calgary is a city divided. We have segregated people in need, we have funneled them, and then we over-police them. We make them live in neighborhoods where flashing lights and sirens fade into the background of normality, and then we criminalize them by nature of investing in policing rather than social services. That is a part of the stress and trauma spoken of here. I teach at Western Canada High School in the downtown core. I am within walking distance of the Alpha House, in from the cold, the mustard seat, and the drop-in center. I work tonight security at the Hotel Arts. I have seen the need for social services in our city. I have had to escort people out of buildings who had nowhere to go. I have had to tell people who are suffering that the sanctity of the properties I represent are more important than their lives. I believe we need to defund the police. It's not controversial. Our province is known for defunding services deemed essential. A $400 million plus the dollar budget for police is absurd in light of the $60 million earmarked for social services, 27 of which comes out of taxes. Police officers are not mental health workers. Police officers are not social workers. Police officers are not community outreach workers. Police officers are not paramedics. Police officers do amazing work. They are a part of a system I believe can work. But we have placed too much on their shoulders and it is weighing them down. That was Courtney Walcott speaking in 2020. He's since been elected as Councillor of Ward 8 and sits on the Police Commission. And I began our conversation by asking Councillor Walcott if his views on police had changed at all since 2020 and what he meant by defunding the police, as that phrase means different things to different people. The the public hearings in 2020 were hard. I'll put it that way. It's, uh, it's an emotional time for a lot of people and it's, it's pretty challenging to have, for, for many people, uh, to have your worldview come crashing down on you like that when 300 some odd people, you know, letters being sent in, speakers coming in to share with you truth, to share with you something, a, a different experience, an experience that maybe a lot of people didn't have in this city, right? And I think that's what that's what made that so hard is that you have a bunch of traumatized people sharing their trauma. And we're just trying to tell, we're trying to tell leaders. We were trying to tell the leaders of our city, the leaders, the leaders that have the power to create some form of change, uh, 
to try and tell them what it's what it's like, what the system does to people. And that's what the, the conversation, like you mentioned here, is that defund, it means different things to different people. The challenge that I've always had is that people will always try and reduce complex concepts into a, into a hashtag. So I actually, I hated during that time. And I don't, uh, like I, I bothered me that many, many complex things will be turned into a hashtag at first. People will turn it into a hashtag and people will still understand it. But just like anything else, when you see it one time, two times, three times, five times, 10 times, a million times, when you see it enough, it loses its complexity. So there are different groups of people that latched on to a concept that had been stripped of its nuance. So for me, when I when I was speaking back then and I was using those those that that, that language of, of defund the police, it was a that is a that is a wide ranging uh, area of academic analysis, even where we were looking at understanding what role the police actually play within our system, within our society. And in many ways, they are the front line of a massive system of care and the justice system, right? So you have both the system of care and the justice system. Like they are the front line of both. Over the years, they were meant to protect people and property. And all of a sudden they went from, you know, as, as we started to approach different societal issues, the rise in drugs, mental health, we started to criminalize homelessness. We started to criminalize drug use. We criminalized, honestly, so many things that were seen at the time in our cultural history as undesirable. We criminalized it as a solution. So for uh, an organization like the, the police, they went from protecting property to protecting property and keeping, you know, putting homeless people uh, into the system, protecting property. Then all of a sudden, there we're starting to approach uh, people who are finding themselves in a health crisis using drugs. We want to criminalize them, put them in jail. And people who are suffering mental health, we've criminalized them for a very long time. We use the society. I say we because obviously I'm a city councilor, but like I think everyone was had a part in this. We use the police as a means of disrupting anything that we did not see as desirable. And every year we did that, we gave them some more money. Every year we, we gave that system more money because that was the system we were using to respond to the things that the society had determined were undesirable. As the world shifts around us and we, we educate ourselves, we elevate, we grow, we learn, we recognize that things that we maybe once considered as undesirable, we started to actually come back to this, the reality of humanity. We started to to decompress and deconstruct some of these systems that created some pretty damaging impacts in our world. And we're trying to shift them. But to shift the systems to a more wide ranging complex system of care to do that, it requires money. So if you are just to honestly, if you're a financial analyst, you're someone who believes in fiscal responsibility and you're saying this part of the system is underfunded, how did that happen? Well, when you go back in the history, you realize it's underfunded because we funneled all this money toward the police to be the number one response to those issues. So there are different people will look at defund in different ways. I always looked at it as a reallocation across the system, a redistribution to create better equity in the system of care, better mental health supports, better supports for people who find themselves unhoused and, and live with housing insecurity, better health, better health supports for people who find themselves uh, suffering from, from the opioid epidemic, better supports for people who are suffering from poverty before they ever find themselves in a situation where they need to go to crime, uh, and policing for those who end up in crime and we still need a reactive force, a reactive service. That's a, that's a strong system when those systems are equitably funded. That's a strong system, which is why, because the nuance was stripped from the, the phrase def, 
defund the police, the nuance was stripped from it. Some people viewed it as an uh, abolition movement, uh, which I did never believe was a, I never believed that that was an outcome that was, was going to produce a desire, like a desirable outcome for society in the near future. Obviously, we all would love to live in a world in which we did not need uh, a police service to protect us because we, we were safe, but I don't believe that's in the near future, that, that end. So people who believe defund the police became uh, abolition. I never was never really a part of that. Uh, people who believe defund the police was about reallocating to create a more comprehensive system of care. That was the, the camp that I belonged into, which is why the organization that I was a part of during that summer of 2020 was called Defund to Fund. The concept was a simple one, right? We, we knew defund the police had too many multiple meanings. Uh, so we, since it had too many multiple meanings, we couldn't, couldn't use it because it didn't serve the purpose. It didn't provide the nuance. It didn't tell the right story. So defund to fund was the organization that I was, that I worked with because that told the story. It's still anchored the, the, you use the word defund, it anchored it because that's a, that's a symbol of history, right? Like that was a, that was a movement in history. Uh, but then the two fund part was to be able to fund different parts of the system that are chronically underfunded. And I, I always felt that people lost the nuance. Uh, so we wanted to try and bring it back in that conversation. And it's interesting because that's something police themselves have been saying for years in Calgary in the sense of they've said, you know, we're kind of the last resort and we're being called upon to deal with all of these social problems. And, you know, we're not trained for this. We're not equipped for this. But it's all it's all following to us, following to us. And that's been, you know, they've been flagging that for kind of as long as I can remember in Calgary. Absolutely. So that's 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 interesting. Has and well, to, to not even like not even to come off that point really quickly, like that is something that has been flagged for a long time. And I think that that was actually what was so what sometimes is is, is a little frustrating um, with kind of the public narrative around this discussion is this work, this this transformative work that we're looking at trying to to do as a society it does require gives in, like like trade-offs um and it is to be able to allow the police to kind of get back to the core of what their duty is that that, that is that they're trained for it, it does require some conversation about if we are reducing x here then we need to ensure that we are putting y here and when it's when those conversations are had in nuance uh, when those conversations are had proactively and not reactively, they you end up finding out that a lot of people are actually on the same side. But when they're done in a opposition or when they're done as a reaction to uh, something or some some criticism, then people dig their heels in into the opposition. And, and that's not the place that I, we need to be in. That's not the place that I want to be in. But that doesn't change the the outcome I think we're trying to achieve. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I think we're seeing a lot of that kind of tension and kind of defensiveness and digging in heels that you're talking about. And and even thinking about, you know, the thin blue line uh discussion and and kind of the the conflict that's developed around that. I don't I don't know if you see that playing out there too, but that's what came to mind. I believe so. Uh, and I, I want to be very clear for the position that I'm speaking to you in now as well. This is uh, as we move into a slightly different topic. This is a, you know, my work on police commission. It's it's an interesting place to be because of the nature of that type of commission. You know, you have a wide range of people from different perspectives and backgrounds that come together to make decisions like this based off of the experiences and the values that they bring to that table. The Line conversation was happening months before I even entered into commission uh, with a wide range of research that they, that they came to. So the, the work that's going on in commission is one that's really anchored in evidence. So I, I speak as, so in this conversation, at least, I'm not speaking as a representative of a police commission, but I definitely, I, definitely I, I, I believe that the resolution going forward here has got to be education you know there's there is a long 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 history to kind of like anti-racism work and 
how certain groups will co-opt symbols for their own personal usage. And if we don't spend the time to actually explain and, and, and have those conversations, then like you described, people dig their heels in because things are, appear to be more personal than I believe they actually are. And uh, that's, I think that's a trend that we see quite often in, in politics nowadays is that every, everyone is trying to personalize uh, some of these, these decisions when they could just be evidence-based and they could just be for the, the, best, the best available option for the public. And I'm curious about, you know, a lot has happened in the last, I guess, just over a month now. Uh, and thinking in particular about what happened in the Beltline which was kind of a, you know, you mentioned the the thin blue line conversation happening before you got on council, and and same thing. This council kind of inherited this situation of these ongoing uh, anti mandate protests going on in the Beltline, and then it all kind of came to a head in March when when there was a counter protest, and then cops were, you know, attacking these counter protesters and, and it, and it all, it all kind of blew up. But at the last commission meeting, you brought up the broken trust that exists now because of that. And I'm curious, I'm curious how you see that in terms of, can that trust be rebuilt between the Calgary police service and, and the public after something like that, where these, you know, community members, uh, find themselves rammed with bikes. Mm-hmm. I think you, you know, you you raised, you, you said something that that sticks with me, right? And you use you use the word attack, and what I what I always work with is you have to kind of put two hats on in these conversations, and this is not like counselor or commission, right? This is actually just uh, almost professional public. Right. Like you have to put, you put your professional hat on, you put your public hat on as a professional, um, you know, especially when you when you speak with with officers. The word attack would it, it's, it wouldn't fit what they would describe what they did. Uh, that use of force uh, was, you know, they would they, they and they have uh, Chief Newfield spoken about this. It's justified as the discretion that's being used to protect public safety. But it's again, as a member of a public, though especially when you hear stories and, and for myself as a counselor and you receive emails uh, and phone calls from people who were there, who people who were, who had, who had bikes, you know, rammed into them to clear the street and so on, they felt attacked. And so I think there has to be a degree of conversation where we, that, that, where I think all of us have to be able to start speaking the same language because I'll, I, I'll put this a little personally for me, um, you know, as a as an ex teacher, I could I could do something in in the course of my day that would that that could destroy the trust between myself and a student. And there's two ways forward. Uh, one is that I could honestly defend it as just me doing my job, as long as it's within the the mandate of the work that I was doing. You know, as a teacher, maybe I was hypercritical of an assignment or, or I made a comment about someone's lateness or, you know, I was very, you can do a lot of, you can do a lot of damage to a relationship, honestly, with an off the cuff remark to a kid, uh, to a student. So maybe, maybe I did that, but I did it in the line of, of, of my work and in the line of teaching. So I could always, I could always talk about it that way. I could always say, Oh, I was just doing my job. But for me as, as an ex teacher, I was always more concerned about, no matter what my intention was, what was the, what was the actual impact? Especially if the relationship is the key thing here, if that's the key outcome, I want to develop a strong relationship because that's, what's going to increase uh, trust between myself and my students. Then even though I might've done the the right thing by definition, by, by the the work that I was doing, it might've produced the wrong outcome for the group that I was trying to support. And that's, that's kind of something that I think we need to start having those conversations in that way. And that's professionally, we can do the right thing, but as a member of the public, it might not feel that way. And that's a conversation that, that needs to be had to, I think, rebuild trust by, by everybody, politicians, police, and the public included. Mm-hmm. 
And do you see that trust being rebuilt? Because it does feel a little fragile at this point. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I think this is just one of those moments where we're actually seeing culmination of years of, of, of developing insecurities play out in a very, very short period of time. You know, I, I like to think about this in a way, partially just because I've, we've been, I think we've all been watching this trajectory happen for, for years now in, in varying outlets, right? When it looks, when we look at the protests, right? These protests, the, the organizers, the people, they've been, they've been protesting pre, pre-COVID, just on different issues, yellow vests uh, and so on, right? Like we've, we've seen these conversations go on, uh, these, these types of actions go on for a long time. And so there was an increasing tension uh, criticism of of the police is actually very similar in the sense that, you know, it ebbs and flows over decades. Obviously, you have heightened criticism in 60s, 70s, 80s. Maybe there was a little bit of a lull in the early 2000s when I think the world's attention turned to post 9-11. And then, then you have Black Lives Matter and Trayvon Martin and the criticism that kind of was always there just... The, the spotlight shines on it a little bit more. When you shine a spotlight on something like this and the public gains more information and, and becomes more aware, it, the criticism, again, just gets louder. As more people are capable of criticizing, more people are capable of speaking to the issues that we see. And all of that is playing out today, right now. Uh, and that doesn't even mean that we are actually at the end of, I don't know if we're at the crescendo, maybe it'll keep going. Maybe there'll be other incidents down the line. We actually can't speak to that. But I, I just, I know I say all this to suggest the, that uh, trust takes time to build, uh, but it doesn't actually take that much time to uh, break down. And that's how I'm approaching this as just a, as a Calgarian is that, you know, you got to be diligent you got to work every day to not lose trust because once you do, it takes a long time to get it back. Yeah. That, that kind of coalescing of, of these issues that you mentioned is, is interesting. It made me think of the piece that you wrote in the, in the Calgary Herald probably a month and a half ago about these protests that were happening in the Beltline. And you talked about, you know, these, these elements of white supremacy, kind of flagrant white supremacy in these movements. But you also talked about kind of what was simmering underneath the surf, surface of, of people feeling to some degree left behind. And I can't remember the language you used, but it was it was something along the lines of like, we need to give these folks a way back or like we need to call these folks back which is i found that very interesting because that was uh (laughs) it was a very uh almost generous approach to a group who frankly has not been generous to you personally the things they've said uh i think they've said you know you should be tried for crimes and whatnot um but no that that is correct they did say that yeah yeah (laughs) yeah you raise a great point (laughs) that uh, maybe it was generous and I, I often think that sometimes I am too generous um, I guess I, I don't believe that I don't believe that everyone I, I know that I, I do believe that some are <laughs> but I don't believe that everyone is is malicious I do actually believe that there are there are many people who who are who choose to walk a path and there are many people who are are walked down a path you know, whose hands are held un, until they can walk on their own down that path themselves, right? And I think when when I was looking at the conversations that were happening in and around those protests, the conversations that were happening in and around kind of all these coalescing issues, we uh, we were seeing people who were protesting that probably just wanted some help and they wanted some connection. They wanted some, some feeling of control in their life because COVID took away control from so many of us. I think if anybody were to even remotely pretend that they did not feel some loss of control over their life, that they would be lying. Some of us just 
we have coping systems and we have there's skills that were were developed and you know there were we had a safety net in some ways that safety net for some people we found it in community in in networks and in, in family and so on and other people's found they like I, and i i do believe this actually like this one's a personal one where i'm like i think it's all like it's facebook man uh i found a, like a lot of people found communities online and when we talk about um a confluence of issues well it's been about 10 years of of misinformation and then especially post 20 2016 some pretty intense digital conspiracy theorists have been making inroads with regular people all the time. The, the source of our information, this is where my, my educator hat comes on, the source of our information that we, we are choosing. People do not have the skills to vet them the same way. Uh, the actual intention behind some of the sources of information that are out there are so clearly man- malicious and manipulated, but in such a very persuasive and clever way that plays on a base understanding of logical kind of outcomes that I'm not even surprised that people buy into some of the things that they see and hear because it actually takes an immense amount of work on everybody's part. It takes an immense amount of work to actually develop the skills to decipher the complexities of the situations that we find ourselves in today. And for some people, We just want the world to be a little bit simpler. So if someone gives us a reductionist, simplified, you know, flag to wave, people will choose that. They will wave that flag because it's easier than the complexities of the world we live in that is challenging. So I've always seen that. And when you see that, I think the you have to call people back in. You have to say, let me offer you this information. Let me show you what you're doing, how it might hurt someone else, how you, and if you're, I have to give you the choice to see the hurt because once you've seen the hurt, you can't play ignorant. If I know, if I've, if I know if I've shown you the outcome of your action, the impact of your action, if I've shown that to you and you still make the same decision, You know, if I show you the amount of people who died of COVID and you still make the decision to say that we need to drop all all restrictions, if I show you that, then maybe at that point, I don't have to be so generous. But until I have that opportunity to sit down and have that conversation, show you everything and allow you to, to make a choice knowing that you've had all the right information handed to you. Then I should start. Then, then, then I can stop being generous. But uh, until that time comes, I feel like I'm gonna always leave that door open for education first, and uh, and then go from there. And and so is that is that what's happening in a sense with this thin blue line debate? I know you said you know you're not you're not speaking for the commission, and I can appreciate that. That said, you are a commissioner, uh, and this is you know this very intense debate that's going on where, you know, the, the commission issued a directive. It's a, it's a lawful directive. Uh, and there was open defiance, you know, from, you know, the police union, uh, to a degree, well, this arguably from the chief, maybe we could debate that, but, but there is this defiance, uh, of this directive and it's kind of landed on, what some see as a capitulation where, you know, the commission and the police are saying, you know, we're going to take time to do this. And, and so how do you see that? Is it a capitulation? Is it a compromise? Just as an individual commissioner, how do you see that? The so, uh, chief, chief Newfeld actually, he talked to me about something a long time ago. Um, well, not a long time ago, but time is relative to me now. But um, we spoke about the concept of uh, policing uh, by consent. Uh, essentially, the idea uh, was that for policing to work, for law to work, for society to work, really, uh, I'm extrapolating a little bit now, but this idea, it only works if everybody to some degree agrees that the rules, the structures, they make sense. 
that they're here for a good reason, that they support us for a good reason. If everybody agrees to follow the rules because we all are on the same page about them being the best, you know, that's, that's going to produce the best outcomes for ourselves. We all, if we all consent to this, uh, then, then doing these jobs gets easier. Policing gets easier. Being a commissioner gets easier. Being a counselor gets easier because if that there's a there's a trust there, right? There's a trust that I don't have to agree with something fully, but if I understand that the system that's in place is here to produce the best outcome, even if it sometimes produces a bad outcome, I still support the system. That's that's like the concept of consent. We're all consenting to live in this society together. The fear is that one day, uh, let's just like, let's say, what if I went, like, I'm going to, I'll put my teacher hat on real quick. Like, what if one day, like I'm teaching a class and all my students decide that they don't want to be in my class anymore. They get up and leave. I can't teach a class anymore. Uh, and whatever authority I have is gone because no one has agreed to share it with me anymore. It's, it's, it's gone. It's out there. So there is, there is this honest conversation that has to be had that, you know, the only reason this, this commission Con the concept of a commission works. The only reason a concept of anything works is that you have to get the people that are that are underneath you to support and agree that this that the system works, that it's there for a reason. And that's actually what we that's like kind of the ongoing conversation is now there's a there was an active push uh, to not consent to commission's direction. And I know, I know how people would view it. They view it as a, um, like, I understand why people might say it's a capitulation, but what authority uh, uh, does, does, like, do we have when we don't agree together that this is the right thing for society? And I think that is the ongoing conversation right now because commission does not at all back down from the fact that the directive was the right thing to do. And again, it's a like long conversation long before I even got there with a wide variety of very intelligent lived experiences sitting on that commission that came to the same conclusion. That this, this is not something that, that you know, we want to have on our, our, on our bodies, even though most officers are not wearing it for any malicious dog whistle. It's just that fact, if you can't control that message, you got to, we, we got to talk about taking it off. So how do you approach that? Right? Like, how do you honestly approach that? Do you approach it with an attempt to actually like, you're, you're, you're witnessing someone feel antagonized by you. Uh, do you antagonize them back? So that's, that's one way, right? Do you, do you witness someone who feels antagonized by you? Do you enforce your way out of it? That's another. Uh, or do you call in? First, offer that education one last time and then try and plot a path forward together. And that has been the decision of, of commission as a whole. And both just to, just to, let's call, like we got to call people in first because we got to all agree at the end of the day that the system that we have, it's there for a reason and it works. It, it has worked. We just have to, we just have to kind of find our way back to it and find our way through that path forward. That doesn't, that's not an easy pill to swallow for many people, um, myself included, but commission is the whole purpose of it is that it's not just one person. It's several people with several skills. So while I might find my own personal challenges just as a citizen when looking upon on some of these decisions, I recognize that just like being generous to the protesters, I offer gener we like we should offer generosity first, and then start figuring out what our options are next after that. Yeah, I mean, I, it kind of begs the question of uh, <laughs> at what point does that run out, or at what point does the you know proverbial hammer come down? Um, no, and uh, those are those are questions that I I personally. Uh, will will eventually will will eventually ask of 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 my commission members. I I don't I don't want to speak for them. I don't know if they want to ask that question, but I know that's something that is even on my own mind as well too. Just as a again as as an individual, uh, because you have to. Even I know. Like so, when I when like let me type. I'm a little generous to some of the people when I was doing the calling. Uh, 
something that I'm very, very, I, I hold, I hold this line really close to, to myself when I, when I talk about, you got to know your boundaries. You have to, you have to know what your line is, right? You got to know like where you feel like you're compromising your own, your own ethics. I think that's something that uh, everybody, everybody has to have. So I think that's, that's just a, a question that it, it's always there in the back of uh, my mind as a counselor, just in general, it's like, Hey, like, where is the, where's the boundary that we want to set when we're having these conversations? And these are questions that I'll ask as, as time moves on. Um, but I don't think we're just, I don't think we're there yet. Yeah. And that, I mean, you brought up uh, that matter of consent and, and trust. I mean, trust kind of underlies so much of what we're talking about, you know, whether it's uh, what happened in the belt line, the situation with the thin blue line. And, and as you say, the whole concept of policing is predicated on public trust. And it's, I just find it very interesting to see that, to see the fragility of that come into focus the way it has in recent months where it's like, wow, it, you know, will this hold? Will, will public support of the police hold? Will, will, will these institutions hold? It's, it's just a very interesting time, but, but that, that, that issue of consent is absolutely underlies it kind of underlies it all. Yeah. Uh, again, it's that, it's a general, it's a general understanding of, of even when you're hypercritical of a system, do you believe in it? Um, you know, it doesn't mean you have to believe in it as it is, right? Like you can believe in a form of it that could, it could become, uh, frankly, you can believe in a form that it once was, right? I think we've seen this with many times where, you know, society shifts in a direction and you're just like, oh, I wish we could go back. Uh, I wish it was like this, or I wish we didn't make X mistake, Y mistake, so on. So when I, when, like, if I would ever, whenever people ask me about these questions, right, people are very critical of me because of my work with Defund to Fund. They, like, I've had enough people make the joke uh, at my expense that they, they would just say, oh, I, I, I hate the police. And I'm like, I've never really understood. When I look at the, the messaging that I've put out there into the world, I'm like, oh, I don't hate anyone. Uh, I just... I believe that when we look at these institutions that are in absolute control of, of public safety, and that's public safety is a, a wide umbrella, uh, but when we look at these institutions that, that hold such power and such strength in our society that criticism is warranted because we know we can improve. We know we can get better. And sometimes criticism is hard to to piece out from, I want to say, I don't want to say hate because it's not hate, but it's, it's when, when legitimate criticisms are tied up in passion and emotion, sometimes it's hard to actually separate when someone is screaming at you, if what they're screaming at you, if underneath it all is a, is a valid concern that should be addressed because sometimes all you hear is the noise, all you hear is the volume, all you hear is the emotion, the aggression, but it's what's underneath that. You start, we, we started this with like those, those three days of hearings. And I challenged, I remember I challenged people. I was really mad about like, I, I was really mad at some of council at the time for how they responded to people because I felt like there wasn't training involved. Like we didn't know, like you didn't know how to be, to not take it personal, right? Like if someone's screaming at you and they're, they're not screaming at you as an individual, unless of course you've done something to them that's different but when they're screaming about the system of and of this of the system of racism systemic racism within institutions and so on if they're screaming at that they're screaming at 150 200 500 years of history laid out in the policies of today they're screaming at all of these these worldwide circumstances that are playing out on their physical body on their mind on their mental health on their emotions on the livelihoods of their, their family and so on they're screaming at everything and they might be looking at you i might be looking you in the eyes while i'm screaming but it actually doesn't have anything to do with you 
So some people have the ability to recognize that. Some people have the ability to take a step back to actually absorb this because we know that it's a, we, we need to actually give people cathartic space to get these things off their chest. We need to do that. Some people have the ability to absorb it and then let the emotion go, but hold on to the criticism that is valid, the systemic part that needs to change. They can hold on to that and they can act on it. Others can't separate the fact that when someone might be yelling at a system that it's that it's somehow they're yelling at you and if you don't have the ability to separate that then this the change that we're talking about is going to be real hard uh and i think that's i, I think that's the the next step is we're just trying to remind people that feel attacked that it's not really about you it's uh it's about the whole system that is much older than you and will be here much long after you and we're just trying to determine what form it exists in from this day forward we don't need it to be what it was yesterday we need it to be something new for tomorrow to create that better equitable future i actually have no concept if i answered your question i went on a little bit of a tangent there uh <laughs> <laughs> no i mean when when you said that it, it it made me think again about the thin blue line thing because we are seeing that response where it's very personal it's very visceral for a lot of cops they're saying you know this is to this is in solidarity with you know to honor officers who have lost their lives in service and and you know, how dare you take that away from me? This is what it means to me. But what's happening or what I kind of see happening is there's been another story introduced, which is, hey, actually, okay, this is what it means to you, but here's also what it means. That might be what it meant to you at a certain point. Uh, and maybe that's what it means to you now, but. Sorry. I want to I want to tweak something actually a little bit. I want to tweak something sure. really quickly. And this is like a huge thing for me. Sorry, you you just hit on like one of my pet peeves. All right. I didn't take anything from you. The commission didn't take anything from you. White supremacists took it from you. Yeah. It's such an important thing that I've been trying to get across to people is like, no, 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 no. We didn't take it from you. We didn't change the meaning. We didn't co-opt your the the thin blue line. We didn't do anything. The commission didn't do anything. You know, uh White supremacists took it from you. And if that is not framed accurately, because like, who are you fighting? You don't, you don't want to, we're not fighting equity seeking groups. We're fighting the fact that people who are actually trying to empower inequities in an attempt to maintain status and attempt to maintain privilege, they have co-opted that symbol. They have tweaked its meaning. They've tainted it. That's something that I really do. I I don't think is discussed um, is discussed enough. Is that this was this was taken from people who earned people who wore that that patch earnestly. It was taken from it just not by not by commission. Uh, it was taken from them by by white supremacists who who marched in Charlottesville, who raided the Capitol, who would fly it in, in the face of Black Lives Matter as almost a satirical joke that said, oh, Black lives that have been taken through police brutality don't matter. You know, that's where, that, that even like the Blue Lives Matter commentary that, uh, you know, that was all done in retaliation. We, no one forced anyone to do that. Someone took it from you. It just, it wasn't us. It was, uh, was people with malice in their heart. And I, I want to, I always got to reframe that. Yeah, yeah, totally. And that, and that makes me think, you know, if that could be, it shifts the frame, right? And shifts the under, shifts the understanding. I wonder if that's, uh, I wonder if that could shift the conversation a bit in a good way, right? If that, uh, if that was considered in that way, rather than kind of the headline sound bite, you know, co commissions trying to, uh, yeah. take this meaningful symbol away, et cetera. Well, that's why, that, that's why I'm open to the conversation. Um, you know, I understand that people are, people are seeking enforcement, uh, 
you know, I know why, like, I know what I believe, but at the end, at the end of the day, like these are the police are the public, the public are the police. So it's like, we, we have to be able to talk to each other. And I don't think for a long time, anybody has been willing to talk to each other. So I will, as an individual and as a commissioner, not speaking on behalf of all of commission, I will be always ready for that conversation to provide that generosity because I think that's going to produce better outcomes for people in need. The, that the people that make up the, the 12 bodies on commission are people who are chosen because they bring skills to the table that is valuable in the landscape of the public good. And I think that is something that sometimes gets lost in, sometimes, in the emotion of the feelings of the work. But, I, but the, the, those 12 commissioners, the 11 people that I sit beside, they're looking for better outcomes from the public, for the public. And you can't, like, you, you can't, uh, can't emphasize enough the significance of that as the core of what commission is as an oversight body, that we just have to try and find a way to get to those better outcomes. Sometimes we'll disagree, but that's it. And underpinning that, just like, honestly, this is my teacher hat again, underpinning that is that you have to have a relationship with the people you have authority over because you have to have that bi-directional consent that we're here for the right reasons. And that takes time to develop. Sometimes it frays, sometimes it uh, snaps, sometimes it breaks, but it's never really gone because you can always find a way forward in a variety of different ways. Uh, and I think we've seen that historically. What do you see as the best case scenario in all this, particularly around the, you know, the thin blue line? And And that's, I mean, I'd also throw this out there, which is the thin blue line has become this really entrenched conflict. And yeah, it's a headline grabber because you have these institutions that are facing off over it. And so everybody's kind of fixated on it. But there's also the question of, is that what we should be fixating on? Is it overshadowing more important issues? I'd be curious how you see that uh, playing out. Yeah, it, well, I think it, I think it absolutely is overshadowing more, overshadowing more important, uh, more important issues and discussions. But I actually think that's partially why it's come to this kind of, you know, precipice uh, is because this is again a way of describing a very, very complex issue. You know, I said this earlier, actually, too. I said this, I said it earlier that, you know, like if, you, if someone can offer you like uh, all of the troubles in the world in, in a reduced, like in a reduced flag that you can wave and say like, oh, like I, the complexities of everything that's going on. If someone can give me a flag to wave that can just simplify it all, that, that many people will reach out and grab that flag. Uh, I believe that that's what this is as well. Uh, that there is, there's, there's, some very, very complex issues that are at hand. And it's sometimes it's hard to distill that into one particular headline. So we're distilling it all into this, the symbolism of, of the patch and, and what it means. Maybe that's, that's it. This is, this is a, a flag that can be waved in lieu of, what some people feel is many other flags that, that also need to be waived. So a much more complex, larger issue. End of line. Thanks for listening and see you again soon. You've been listening to Sprawlcast. My name is Jeremy Clausus, and I'm the editor-in-chief of The Sprawl. And this has been my conversation with Councillor Courtney Walcott. This interview was recorded on April 14th. Make sure you're signed up for The Sprawl's weekend newsletter if you're not already. We send it out Saturday mornings, and that's the best way to get the latest from The Sprawl, including stories, sprawl casts, and or comics, depending on the week. At the very start of this episode, you heard a clip from CTV's April 6th broadcast. This episode was edited by Mike Todd. 
Our theme music is by Dandy Augustino and Kenny Murdoch. Our C-Train narrator is Holly McConnell. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. <laughs>